A very warm welcome to everybody. It's lovely to be here in Los Angeles, and it's very nice to not be on the I-5 anymore. Because that's where I spent the last couple of hours coming up from San Diego. As you heard, I run a blog, restlesspilgrim.net, and in every presentation I give, I shamelessly promote it. And on that blog, I write about church history, sacred scripture, um, apologetics, and occasionally when I'm in the mood, I also rant a little bit about dating. I also run a podcast. It's, uh, we're on episode 21 at the moment. It's called The Eagle and Child. And together with my co-host, we gather each week and we discuss a chapter of a work by C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, one of the consequences of spending my formative years in England is that I have this delightful accent. And the advantage is that, at least to American ears, everything that I say sounds brilliant. <laughs> but the disadvantage is it sometimes causes people to stop listening to what I'm saying. And over the years, I've learned to recognize it. The eyes go a little glassy, and I can tell that they've stopped listening to what I'm saying, and they're just letting the pretty sounds wash over them. But I'm not always easy to understand. I use words and phrases that aren't that common here in the United States, and I pronounce some words differently. For example, I'm sure all of you here talk about herbal tea, whereas I would call it herbal tea. I will leave it to you to work out which one is the correct pronunciation and sounds much better. But my point in saying this is that if at any point tonight you don't understand what I'm saying, please just wave at me and I'll have another go at trying to translate it into American. <laughs> and likewise, if you have a question about anything that I'm saying, please feel free to just raise your hand. I much prefer it when talks are interactive and there'll be time for Q&A during the talk and at the end. But tonight, I'm going to be speaking to you about one of, my, one of my greatest passions, and that's sacred scripture. I've led Bible study groups both here and back in England for years, and I'm actually currently writing a book on the subject. Out of interest, how many of you brought your Bibles with you tonight? Oh, we have, you lost. The Protestant church is just down the street. <laughs> No, so two people. Well, that, that, that was better than I was expecting. <laughs> no, if you can play Angry Birds on it, it isn't a Bible. But it's time to undo this stereotype that Catholics don't care about or don't know their Bible. My job tonight is to help you nurture your love for sacred scripture and to give you some tools to help understand it and, and unpack it. My goal is to inspire you to open your Bibles and read, and to read the Bible like a Catholic. And that's the title of this talk. But before we go any further, we should open in prayer. And I'm a Byzantine Catholic, so our liturgy looks a little different, and our theology is expressed a little differently. But we're still in communion with the Pope in Rome. We still share the same Eucharist. And I would actually like to begin with a prayer of the Eastern Church. So if you'll please join me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within our hearts, cleanse us of all stain, 
and save our souls, O gracious one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So a little bit about how I'm hoping to structure this evening. I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about my faith journey and the role that sacred scripture played in that journey. After that, I'm going to speak a little bit about the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Bible, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there. And finally, we're going to get very practical, because my goal tonight isn't just that you should walk away with a few more facts about the Bible. For the remainder of our time together, we're going to look at how we can get more out of the scripture that we read and hear, with a particular focus on the place where Catholics hear scripture most often, in the Mass. So I'd like to begin by turning the clock back. I'm getting kind of old now, so I'm not going to tell you how many years. But I grew up in a Catholic household. We went to Mass every Sunday, and I have vivid memories of myself, my mother, and my sister praying together at bedtimes. My mother and eventually my sister, they were children's liturgists. And I was an altar server. I was giving a talk a couple of weeks ago, and this came up. And I said, I love how hopeful Catholicism is, just so optimistic, because we think nothing of taking an eight-year-old boy, dressing him in a long, flowing, flammable robe, and then handing him a naked flame, a candle, or an incenser full of burning coals. What could go wrong? Honestly, I have no idea how I survived those years. But growing up, I never really had any rebellion against the church. I know some people do, but I didn't. I went to Mass each week. It was expected of me. It never even crossed my mind that I might try and tell my mother that I was going to stay in bed. I'm not that crazy. But about this time, we were going to a Benedictine Abbey for Mass, and so the architecture was just beautiful. And I found that I really enjoyed Gregorian chant, and I found real solitude and peace and stillness after communion. Peace. And I really liked that. Of course, it didn't hurt that there were some attractive females of approximately my age who also went to Mass on Sunday. Please don't judge me. God's beauty is made manifest in this world in many different ways. Just as a teenage boy, that was a way I particularly appreciated. Anyway, I grew up and I went to university, and in my second year, I moved off campus. And I ended up living in a house that was next door to, and actually owned by, one of the Catholic churches in the city. And shortly after my arrival, the student masses would begin, about once a month. And there was also a prayer group that would meet. And this prayer group was run by a group of missionaries from Verbum Dei, not to be confused with Opus Dei. That's something a little different. But the format of the evening was pretty simple. The missionary would give us a talk for about 10, 15 minutes maybe, and then we would have about another 10 or 15 minutes in silence to pray about what we've just been taught. And we were also given this sheet of paper with quotations from scripture on it. Verbum Dei, the, the missionary group who was running these meetings, it literally means word of God in Latin. And so one of the things they were quite well known for was this prayer with scripture. And it was during one of these periods of silence, reading scripture, that something happened to me. My faith really came alive. And it came alive as I was reading a very short verse 
from the prophet Jeremiah. This is how it goes. The word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, I knew this passage. I had done religious studies in school, and I'd had to learn a whole lot of scripture. So this wasn't new to me. But that night, those words had power in them. It was like the Holy Spirit had gone over those words with a highlighter to really get my attention. That night, I began to really grasp that I was known by God. And that changed everything. It meant that my life had meaning and purpose. I've described it like a homing beacon flickered to life inside me. And it was around this time that I first heard the words of St. Augustine. He was a bishop from the 4th, 5th century. And in his autobiography, it's called The Confessions, on the very first page he wrote, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. As I read those words of Jeremiah, I felt my restlessness. I looked back on the recent years and saw this restlessness had been growing. And I saw the cause. I had a God-shaped hole in my heart. I'd been trying to stuff it full of other things, and none of them were doing the job. The bottom line is, from that moment, my faith was set on fire, and it all began through this, an encounter with sacred scripture. And again and again, I've returned to the written words to hear the voice of the shepherd. I've been challenged and I've been comforted. I've been admonished, but I've also been restored. And my goal tonight is that you too would open your Bibles, and if you don't already do so, to encounter the Lord and encounter the living word in this way. Whenever I speak about the Bible or write about the Bible on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net, <laughs> told you I was shameless, I often meet the assertion that the Catholic Church doesn't really care about the Bible. And in fact, that what our clergy do is they do everything they can to keep it out of our hands. Now, I've got a more detailed response to this on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. <laughs> but I wanted to take a few minutes to disabuse you of this notion, since I think even some Catholics think that the Bible is just for clergy, or just for theologians, or even just for Protestants. And to prove that this isn't right, we're going to go to the source, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this is the official compendium of all we believe as Catholics. In paragraph 133, it says this, the church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. Please say, all the Christian faithful. Come on, saying things in unison is kind of what we Catholics do well. Let's just try it one more time. All the Christian faithful. That's better. And now say, Frequent reading. Frequent reading. There we go. The church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. The Catholic Church 
wants all Catholics to read the Bible. Shocking, right? The Bible is not just for religious professionals. Pope St. Gregory, he was in the sixth century. He had this wonderful image. He, when he's describing scripture, he said it was like a stream that was deep enough in which an elephant could swim, but one in which a lamb could wade. Isn't that a beautiful image? He's saying that in the Bible, there's something for everybody, from the little child to the PhD theologian. And this section of the Catechism concludes like this. It concludes with a quotation from one of the greatest scripture scholars in our church's history, St. Jerome. He's very short and to the point. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Put simply, the Catholic Church wants all Catholics to read the Bible. The Catholic Church wants all Catholics to be Bible Christians. So the church has exhorted us to become more familiar with the sacred writings. But how do we do it? I mean, we're often impressed by our Protestant neighbors, aren't we? When they quote scripture, chapter and verse. The only reason they can do this is they've made it a priority in their lives. To become more familiar with sacred scripture absolutely requires the grace of God, but it also requires two other things, time and effort. And in my remaining time, there are lots of different things I could talk about as to ways to get more out of scripture. But I'm going to choose what I think is the quickest means to do that. Where do Catholics hear scripture the most? In the mass. So let's just go back to the catechism one more time. Actually, I'm going to do it twice more. In paragraph 103, it says this. For this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. The church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. That's a huge statement. It's saying that Catholics love sacred scripture in the same way Catholics love the Eucharist. And we all know how nuts the Catholics are about the Eucharist, don't we? It goes on and says this. The church never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and of Christ's body. The one table of God's word and of Christ's body from the lectern and the altar. The Catholic Church feeds her children through the two parts of the Mass. I know we've got some confirmation students here, so quiz time. What's the name of the first part of the Mass? Some people are going to fail. The Liturgy of the Word. Okay. And everybody together. And the second part is called the Liturgy of the Eucharist, okay. <laughs> this is how a mother church feeds us. And the catechism then goes on to talk about the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It says, the fourfold gospel holds a unique place in the church, which is evident from the veneration which the liturgy accords it. Think back to mass. Think about the gospel book. It's usually eye-catchingly ornate. It's usually carried aloft in an opening procession by a priest, a deacon, or maybe a lector. And when it comes time to be read, what happens? It's accompanied with candles, incense, prayers, cries of alleluia. I know it's Lent and I shouldn't be saying that, but I'm giving a talk, so it's allowed. 
And the gospel book is even kissed. Why does all this happen? Do we just love ceremony? Well, yeah. But it's more than that. It's for love of scripture to show the importance of the gospel. And it's to prepare the people of God to hear the word of God. If you go to a typical Roman Rite Mass like you have here, you hear so much scripture. First reading, you get a passage from the Old Testament. It's then followed by a psalm. And then in the second reading, you usually get an extract from one of the epistles. And then finally you come to the gospel and you get a section from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, I spent some years among a Protestant congregation. I can promise you, we never had that much scripture read to us on a Sunday. Actually, over the course of the year, every Catholic is going to hear the major events and themes of salvation history, and especially over the three-year cycle. I looked up the numbers. If you could just go to Mass every Sunday, you'll hear 4% of the Old Testament, which doesn't sound too much, but I'm reading through the Old Testament at the moment. Trust me, it's long. And you hear about 41% of the New Testament. But if you go to daily Mass, those numbers jump up. It's now 14% of the Old Testament and 72% of the New Testament. We hear so much Scripture at Mass in the readings, but that's not the only place that we hear Scripture. The Lord be with you. Whoa, he's not a priest. He shouldn't be doing that. Just humor me. The Lord be with you. That's Galatians 6.18. Lift up your hearts. Did you know that was Lamentations 3.41? Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. That's Colossians 1.3. Almost everything that we say in the Mass is either a direct scripture quotation or an allusion to something in the Bible. If you actually look online, you can find these guys that will go through the entirety of the Mass and they'll have citations pointing about where it's stolen it from Scripture. And if you want to hear this, there's a podcast I love listening to. It's called The Catholic Man Show. In episode five, the two hosts, one of them is reading all of the Mass parts and the other one is giving all of the citations. And they go on for ages and ages and ages. The Mass is saturated with the Bible. But if that's the case... Why are we not experts already? Why do Catholics have such a bad reputation when it comes to knowing the Bible? How can I put this? I think we're generally pretty inattentive. We have a habit of drifting off, zoning out, and it's not even because the priest has got a great accent. (laughs) Just imagine with me for a moment. I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but it might have happened to your friends. You turn up to Mass a little late. You get there just in time, about halfway through the opening hymn, and so you quickly scoot in and you find your spot in the pew. The priest is up there doing his opening prayers, and then you sit down, because it's now time for the first reading. And rather than listening to that reading, what do you do? You look around. Who's at Mass today? Where's everyone sitting? And before you know it, you're hearing... The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then the cantor comes up to sing the psalm. And you are about to pay attention when you notice they have a really lovely bracelet on. And one of your friends has a birthday coming up. So you think they might like this. And you think to yourself, I wonder where she got it. And before you know it, the psalm's done. 
But it's now time for the second reading, and you are going to pay attention as soon as you've worked out where you're going to go for brunch afterwards. <laughs> I've been in America for a while now, and I've reached the conclusion that most American Catholics think that brunch is like the eighth sacrament. <laughs> and before you know it, you're hearing the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But now it's time for the gospel. It's going to be different this time. You are going to summon all your powers of concentration and acuity, and you are not going to get distracted. But your shoelace is untied. And then there are these two little boys in the pew in front that are trying to kill each other in front of you. And before you know it, you hear the gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. But it's okay. You can still catch up because Father is going to recap everything in his homily. Has anybody seen Men in Black, the movie? Because I think that as we're walking out of Mass, we get zapped with the neuralizer that wipes our memory. And if you don't believe me, we're just going to have a moment of silence. What did your priest preach on last week? I'm seeing lots of blank faces and a couple of people trying to really look, look like they seem confident. So the question is, how do we counteract this? And just before we go on, I just wanted to remind you, if you want to ask questions as we go along, feel free. So I've got a number of tips, a number of suggestions for how we can get more out of the Scripture at Mass and how we can be more concentrated, more attentive to the Word of God as it's being read and preached. And my first suggestion is, quite frankly, the most important thing that I'm going to say tonight. If you want to get more out of the scriptures you hear at Mass, read the readings beforehand. I really can't emphasize this enough. You might want to do this with your family, or you might want to do this with your friends in a Bible study. But what if there isn't a Bible study near you? Number one, is God calling you to start a Bible study? But also, there are so many great resources online these days. Bishop Robert Barron, he puts his homily online for the coming Sunday right at the beginning of the week. There are podcasts like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. That's specifically geared towards teenagers and young adults. And they'll be talking about the scriptures and talking about what they mean and how to apply them to their life. There's also the Lanky Guys, Scott Hahn, he has a, a little podcast where he very quickly summarizes all of the passages. Brant Petrie does these extensive, beautifully produced videos. So like I said, this is the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. If you want to get more out of Mass, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to understand Scripture better, read the Sunday Mass readings before you come to Mass. That was number one. Number two, prepare with prayer. So rather than sneaking in during the opening hymn, turn up early to Mass. You could even sit near the front. I mean, if, if we're busting stereotypes, we might as well get rid of all of them. I mean, we all know the holy seats are back there. Now, in the previous suggestion, I encourage you to read the Mass readings before you come to Mass. But even if you didn't have time to do that, if you come a little early, read the readings before Mass starts, while you're waiting. And not only that, pray for your priest 
who's going to be preaching the word. Pray for your lectors who are going to be proclaiming the word. And also, pray for yourself. Pray that you'll have open ears and an open heart. Recall the, uh, the parable of the sower. Jesus said that a man went out to sow seed. And this seed is representative of the word of God. Some of it falls along the path and gets gobbled up by birds. Some of it ends up in the rocky soil and it doesn't get deep roots. Other seed ends up among the weeds and it gets choked. But some of the seed, some of the seed falls on rich soil and bears fruit and fruit abundantly. So as you're praying, pray that the Lord will find a fertile heart, an open heart, a heart that is receptive to his word. So, tip number one. Anyone remember? Excellent. I told you I like it interactive. Keeps you on your toes. Number two. Prepare with prayer. Yep, come early. Number three. Read along. I'm dyslexic, so if ever I'm trying to understand something or learn something, it really helps me if I engage as many of my five senses as I possibly can. So, as the word is being read, follow along in a missalette. And if you're at a parish that doesn't have a missalette, you could maybe get a Magnificat subscription. It's a little book, and they've got all the Sunday readings. Or for those millennials among you, you get apps on your phone. iBerivery, Laudate. Or if you're really brave, you could bring your Bible with you and actually look up the readings. So, read the readings beforehand. Prepare with prayer. Read along. Number four, bring a notepad. If any of you have visited a Protestant congregation, particularly the evangelical variety, you might have noticed that they will bring journals with them. As scripture's being read, and it's particularly during the sermon, they'll be making notes. And I think our Protestant brethren are onto something here. This certainly keeps me engaged. And we mentioned Matthew Kelly earlier. Matthew Kelly puts forward this challenge. Every Mass every mass stay on the lookout for one thing one thing that jumps out at you one thing to meditate upon the in the coming week one thing to work on this week it could be from the readings from the homily from the very words of the mass but look for it and when you hear it write it in your journal you could do it while you're in the church or you could leave it out in the car and do it as soon as you get back if you do that every single time you go to Mass, imagine the resource you're going to have at the end of the year. You can look back and see how the Lord has been speaking to you. Let's do a review. What was the first one? Second one? Mm -hmm. Third one? And number four? You guys are great. Five stars, all of you. Number five, everyone say, do brunch. Do brunch. <laughs> now, I made fun of brunch earlier, but if we want to grow deeper in our understanding of something, if we really want to solidify what we know and to explore it and plumb new depths, it really helps to discuss it with people. So here's my suggestion. After Mass, invite your friends to brunch, particularly if I'm your friend. Or if someone's new to the parish, 
And as you're eating your eggs benedict and sipping your mimosas, you can talk about the readings from Mass. You can discuss the homily. You might even reread some of the readings and grow in God's Word as a community. It's also a really nice transition if anybody wants to launch a Bible study. Promise people mimosas and they will just turn up. <laughs> Number six, look for links. I'd like to spend a little bit more time on this one. Here I'm thinking of links between the Old Testament and the New Testament. St. Augustine described it this way. He said the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old is unveiled in the New. I don't think it's controversial to say that a lot of Catholics are a little standoffish about the Old Testament. I mean, out of all of the Bible, it's certainly, certainly the biggest part. And it describes a time and culture that's even further removed from us and therefore a little harder to understand. Whereas the New Testament is shorter and it's easier to understand. And honestly, it contains all of the best bits. It's all about grace and forgiveness. It's about the climax of salvation history. It has Jesus. It's therefore not surprising that people tend to gravitate to the New Testament. Now, there was a really extreme version of this in the early church. There was a heretic by the name of Marcion who wanted to get rid of the Old Testament entirely. But this isn't the Catholic way of doing things. How do we find out the Catholic way of doing things? We go back to this book. We go back to the Catechism. In paragraph 122, it says this. Even though the Old Testament books contain matters imperfect and provisional, the books of the Old Testament bear witness to the whole divine teaching of God's saving love. And they contain sound wisdom for human life, as well as a wonderful treasury of prayers. And here's the important bit. In them, the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. The mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to try and unpack this with an example that I think should be familiar to most of you. I want to tell a story that's found in Genesis 22. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'd like you to take your son Isaac, your only son, the son whom you love, really, it just really hammers home on this, and I want you to take him to this mountain range, and on the summit, I want you to kill him. Now, Isaac was Abraham's miracle baby. Both he and his wife were exceptionally old when they conceived. And God had made promises about Isaac. God said that through Isaac, Abraham was going to become a great nation. But Abraham is obedient. He takes two servants with him and the boy, and they go to the mountain range. And at the foot of the mountain, he leaves the servants, and he tells them, we're going to go up, and then we'll come back down later. And as they go, Isaac is carrying the wood for this sacrifice on his back. Now, in art, he's often represented as a little child. That's just wrong. At this point, he's a strapping young man. He's at least a teenager. So he's carrying the wood up the mountain on his back. He's a teenager, so he's probably complaining. And then he notices something. He says, hey, Dad, I'm carrying the wood, but I also notice you have a very sharp knife and some fire but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to him, very prophetically, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. They get to the summit, and scripture doesn't tell us too much, but it's clearly here that Abraham lets Isaac in on 
what's going to happen. And as I said, he's a young man at this point, and his father is exceptionally old. So if he wanted to get away, he could have. But he isn't. He's a willing sacrifice. He allows himself to be bound, and he lies on the altar. And just as Abraham is about to bring the knife down on his son, an angel from heaven calls and tells him to stop. Abraham looks up his eyes and sees a ram with its horns caught in a thicket, and he sacrifices that instead. And God says to Abraham, since you didn't hold back anything from me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants, and through your descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. Now, what I've just described there is what we call the literal sense of Scripture. It's the meaning of the words. But I want to make a distinction here. It's not literalistic. So the literal sense is what the author intended, what, it, what the text means rightly understood. That means we have to take into account the genre, the context, and any idioms. So I don't know what it was like in LA, but back in San Diego last weekend, it was raining cats and dogs. Now, the literal meaning of that, what I mean is it rained heavily. A literalistic interpretation would have meant that household pets were just falling <laughs> from the sky. Incidentally, when it rains in California, you can always tell who was born here and who's moved here. So the locals are always saying, oh, it's good. We, we need the water. This is great. And people like me who moved here because it was sunny are going, no, this is not fair. This is not what I signed up for. I pay the sunshine tax. <laughs> but we have to understand the idioms being used. Jesus says that if we are to be his disciples, we must hate mother and father. What did he mean? What is the meaning behind that phrase? We need to understand those things if we're going to grasp the literal sense of the text. But I now want to talk about the spiritual sense, the spiritual meaning of the text. And in biblical studies, we call this biblical typology. And typology is the means by which events in the Old Testament foreshadow future events, future realities. All of the good things that came with the new covenant, Jesus, the sacraments, the church, our mother. And those ladies that I spoke to last year will remember we spoke about this. We spoke about how Mary is the new Eve, the new Ark of the Covenant, and the new Queen of Heaven. So I'd like to return to that story of Abraham and now look at the spiritual sense of that text. Bring the New Testament back to Abraham and see what else is going on. How did I say the text describes Isaac? What kind of son was he? He's only begotten, loved. Can you think of another son in the Bible who is only begotten and the only son and deeply loved by the Father? Jesus John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John is talking about Jesus, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking about Abraham. What about Isaac? What was the manner of his conception? It was a miracle. His parents were beyond childbearing years. What was the manner of Jesus' birth and, and conception? It was a miracle. But was it a lesser miracle? It was a greater miracle because he didn't even have an earthly father. His mother was a virgin. And you see this all the time in typology, that what happens in the Old Testament is a small foreshadowing of something even greater that's going to happen in the new. What did I say Isaac was carrying up the mountain? Wood. Can you think of someone else who's carried up wood up a mountain? 
in the form of a cross. And you remember what Abraham said when Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? He said, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. He does in that situation, but that's pointing forward to something else. When the lamb of God, remember that's how John the Baptist describes Jesus, the lamb of God offers himself for the life of the world. And I said that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Well, so was Jesus. Again and again in the Gospels, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free choosing. He could have called legions of angels to defend him. He didn't. And that's something else that you see. Sometimes there's similarity between the old and the new, and sometimes there's difference. Because in the story of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac doesn't die. But in the story of Jesus, he does. He gives everything to the end. And when the church fathers reflected on the ram who had caught its horns in the thicket, they saw the crown of thorns around Christ's head. And when Jesus died, when his side was pierced, he gave birth to the church, a blessed people who are going to be a blessing to the whole world through Jesus. Jesus is that fulfillment, what God promised Abraham, that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. This is how Catholics read scripture, especially the Old Testament. This is how we discover the hidden treasure that's lying there. This is how the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is unveiled in the New. And this is handed to us on a platter at Mass. We have the first reading from the Old Testament, and we have the Gospel reading. Almost always there is some kind of prophecy or some kind of foreshadowing going on. So as you're hearing the Scriptures proclaimed, look for those links. Ask yourself, what is similar here and what is different? And I want to spend a little bit more time on this topic because I didn't learn about biblical typology until in my late 20s. And it opens up Scripture in a way I can't describe because it shows the unity of God's plan and the continuity through salvation history. And it puts Jesus throughout. Jesus is no longer just someone who appears at the end to set everything right. He's been present all the way along. St. Irenaeus of Lyon was an early church father in the second century, and he said that scripture is like a treasure hidden in a field brought to light by the cross of Christ. When we bring the light of Christ, when we bring the cross of Christ back into the Old Testament, we begin to see insights and find riches that would have been unseen and inaccessible even to the most wise and learned rabbi. And this is especially important because we're in Lent at the moment, and we're going to be coming up to the Easter Vigil. And throughout this time, we're going to hear stories of the Exodus. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God sent them a savior in the person of Moses. He then led them out. They celebrated the Passover, where the Paschal lamb was slain. His blood was painted on the lintel, and everyone in the house consumed the lamb. They then leave. They go to uh, the Red Sea, and they pass through the waters. They go to Sinai, where they receive the law of God. And then they journey in the wilderness for 40 years before passing through the rivers Jordan and entering the Promised Land. When St. Paul recounts some of these events in 1 Corinthians, he said that these things happened for our instruction. All of these things are instructions for Christians. 
Because this is really a retelling of what Christ is going to do. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. We're enslaved to sin. God sent them a savior in Moses. He sent us a savior in Jesus. Every mass, we celebrate a new Passover. And we're going to celebrate the Passover of Passovers at Easter, when the lamb is slain, when we're washed with his blood and we consume him. We're then led out. We pass through the waters, not of the Red Sea and the Jordan, but of baptism. And we journey, the, the Israelites journey for 40 years in the desert. We journey through this life in search of our home, the promised land of heaven. So when you hear the Old Testament being read at Mass, have these sorts of things in your mind. Look for those connections. Let's just do a recap. What was the first one? Read the readings beforehand, yes. Second one? Prepare with prayer. Get there early. Spend some time digging into the Word, praying for the ministers. Third one? You guys are so good. Yes, read along in a missile, uh, missalette or an, an app. Number four? Bring a notepad. Look for that one thing. Something jumps out at you. God is speaking to you through that. Spend the rest of the week trying to work out what he's trying to say to you. Number five? Do brunch. Everyone always remembers do brunch. <laughs> Gather together with your friends. Talk about the readings that you've heard. If you've gone to different churches, you'd have heard different homilies. Compare and contrast. Find out who has the better priest. Number six. Look for the links. Look for biblical typology. Find the connections between the Old Testament reading and the gospel. Look at what's similar and what's different. Final suggestion. Number seven. Apply to life. Every time you finish reading the Bible or hearing scripture proclaimed at Mass, take some time to reap the fruit of this study. Consider how you might apply this to your life. And this is one of the functions of the homily. The priest breaks open the word. He explains what the passages mean. And one of his other jobs is to then help you apply this to your everyday life. Because honestly, if scripture only makes it to your head, your time will have largely been wasted. There's a fourth century early church father called St. John Chrysostom, one of my favorites. He said that the Holy Scriptures were not given to us that we should enclose them in books. It's that we should write them on our hearts. Take what you've heard, what's in your head, and make it find its way into your heart. And then ultimately, out into your hands, into your actions, in the way that you live your life. Because as Jesus said in John's Gospel, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If we believe that the Bible contains the words of life, then we should want to apply them. We live in a time when most people are woefully ignorant of the Bible. They've never read any of either Testament, and this is why we read it. We read the scriptures so as to be transformed, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, because it may be that the only Testament, the only gospel, the only good news your friends may ever read will be your life. I've got just a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to draw things to a conclusion. Tonight, I've spoken a little bit about my journey of faith and the role that sacred scripture played in that journey. I also spoke about the relationship between the Bible and the Catholic Church. And I offered you seven suggestions on how you can get the most out of the scripture that you hear at Mass. But now it's up to you.
Next time you go to Mass, next time you hear the Bible proclaimed, will you be ready? Now, I began tonight by telling a little bit of my story, and I'd like to end with somebody else's story. He was a man, a man of the world. He was intent on seeking fame and fortune. He had rejected his childhood faith, and he engaged in the sins that the young often get themselves involved with. He actually joined a sort of new-agey kind of cult. But over time, he became disillusioned with this cult that he had joined, and he began to reconsider the religion of his youth and the faith of his mother. And all of this came to a head one day when he was in a garden, and he heard the voice of a little child singing tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin for pick up and read. He had with him a copy of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And so he did that. He picked up his book and he read. And he experienced the grace of conversion. That man was St. Augustine, priest, bishop, early church father, saint, probably one of the most influential theologians in the Catholic Church's history, certainly in the West. If you walk away with nothing else tonight, let it just be the encouragement and the, those encouraging words that Augustine heard. Tole lege. Take up the scriptures. Hear them proclaimed in the liturgy. Encounter the living word and be transformed. Become fully Catholic by becoming a Bible Christian. Let's close in prayer. I'd like to pray a prayer from the third century by a prolific writer called Origen, Origen of Alexandria. And he exemplified this understanding of biblical typology I mentioned earlier. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, inspire me to read your scriptures, meditate upon them day and night. I beg you to give me real understanding of what I need, that I in turn may put its precepts into practice. Yet I know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So I ask that the words of Scripture may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into my heart. Saint Jerome, pray for us. Saint Augustine, pray for us. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.